0: story that we call the Good Samaritan is only found in Luke's gospel, and it is the first story, the first parable that Jesus tells on his journey toward Jerusalem. He tells this uh, story uh, after sending some messengers ahead of the group to a Samaritan village But the people don't welcome the messengers and they are not going to welcome Jesus and his followers. And so James and John say to Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy that Samaritan village? And then the text in chapter 9 of Luke simply says Jesus rebukes them. Jesus rebukes James and John. And then in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, we have these words. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself... He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. This is a story of God for the people of God. Would you say with me, thanks be to God. Well, if you've ever thought that your work was so difficult, or your days were so long that you might want to go to work at a church where things are easy. This week, my advice to you is to reconsider. <laughs> at the end of a long day, I was sitting opposite of a deflated coworker who asked me, Well, what's saving your life right now? Ah, I said, it's my people. My people are saving my life. You know the ones. The ones who say we're in this together, no matter what. They value what I think and what I care about. They miss me when I'm not present. They know that I'm not perfect and allow me to apologize and they love me in spite of myself. Those are my people. Jonathan Brooks teaches about the importance of spiritual relationships. And he says that what we've missed is moving spiritual relationships from the surface to a place of depth. In many instances, we've missed this in the church. We do surface relationships pretty well, and so the entrance part of a relationship is hospitality, and that's welcoming the other. We do that well. We notice other people. It's an important and gracious move, but it's not a very deep place. And so to get to a deeper place, you've got to go to this place of mutuality. And mutuality in a relationship is the place where we say, what you care about, I care about. If it's important to you, it's important to me. It doesn't mean that we necessarily agree, but I want to know your story and I want to understand you. That's the place of mutuality. And then the deepest place of a spiritual relationship is this place of solidarity which means if you're missing, I notice it. If you're missing, it's important to me that you're not here. Your presence makes a difference in this body, and that's the place of solidarity. So my people, my people more than just tolerate me. My people uh, say that I matter to them, and they know that they matter to me. And so that's what's saving my life right now. One night this week, I went out to eat with some of my people, <laughs> and as we were driving back home into our gated community, we were slowed down because the gate to our neighborhood was lying flat on the road in front of us. A few minutes before we arrived, a high school student that I'm not related to, shoo, in her car had come upon the entrance to our community under some duress, and she hit the gas instead of the brake, and so she plowed right through the gate, and she took down the fence with it. Suddenly, my neighborhood was a lot bigger. (laughs) There's some sense that when Jesus is telling this story, when he's telling this parable, he's plowing through the gate. He's expanding the neighborhood. There's a list of characters on the road in this story. Now, there's a priest and then after the priest, there's a Levite. And then the logical third character would be a Jew. Anybody who's listening to this story would think, okay, here, here comes the priest, and then after the priest is the Levite, and the third guy, the good guy, is going to be the Jew, a lay person who is faithful to the practices of the faith. And if that were true, then we would call this parable the parable of the good religious person. And that would be really boring and bland. And it's certainly not very challenging. And so we don't call this parable the parable of the good religious person, because if that story was ever told, it didn't much stick. Instead, we call this parable the good Samaritan. And a Samaritan is the very opposite of Jesus' disciples, the very opposite of the lawyer who poses the question to Jesus, It's not just James and John who don't like Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans have a very long history of distrusting and mistreating one another. They each saw themselves as the true inheritors of the promises that were given to Abraham. And then they each saw the other's misunderstanding to be great. So great, in fact, that it was offensive. So let me give you a few examples of how that played out in the first century when Jesus and his disciples were living and teaching. In the year nine, Josephus records that some Samaritans entered the temple in Jerusalem and they scattered bones all over the temple during Passover. Okay, that's more than just being tp That would make the temple unclean. That would be truly offensive to the Jews who worshiped in the Jerusalem temple. And many first century Jews believed that it was the Samaritans who were to blame for the prophet Isaiah's death. And in the year 50, there was a group of Jews who were traveling to Jerusalem and they were attacked on their way on the road by some Samaritans and some of the Jews were killed. So then a group of Jewish zealots went to their village, and they sacked and burned the village. So there was a great divide between Jews and Samaritans. The divide between the two groups started in an ideological way. They disagreed on something. But then they took that divide, and on top of that divide, they added insult and injury after insult and injury to the point where they couldn't stand one another. They just demonized each other. So I want to ask you this morning to consider who the Samaritans are in your world. Who are the Samaritans in your life? Muslims? How about the guy across the street? The one who has the sign in his yard for the other Senate candidate? Yeah. Yeah. Or how about an ex-spouse? If you've ever been married but are no longer married because of a divorce, it's possible that your ex-spouse is your Samaritan. Or maybe you are theirs. How about that? Because there was an ideological divide between the two of you, and then on top of that, there's insult and injury. Do you remember that joke that Jeff Foxworthy got too much mileage out of, you might be a redneck? Well, what I want you to know this morning is you might be a Samaritan. (laughs) Chances are good. The chances are pretty good that you are a Samaritan. You just might be one. A Samaritan is someone that we love to hate. We love to hate them because they are mean or wrong And we have accumulated a big evidence, a history to prove that they're wrong and that they're mean. So a Samaritan that shows up generously is not only a surprise, but a Samaritan who shows up generously is scandalous. But generous is really the only way to describe this guy's actions. He delays his journey. He expends great energy. He He risks danger on the road uh, to himself. He spends two days' wages on the care of of the man who's been beaten up, and he promises more. Now, the assumption is that the guy on the side of the road uh, beaten up, half-dead, is Jewish, and I think that that's probably the case. So let me tell you what he might be thinking, half-dead, as he's receiving care from the Samaritan. I wish I were dead. I'd rather die than be nursed back to life by you. Theologian Ellsworth Callus wrote about this parable, As surely as you harbor ill feelings against some group or a particular class of people, you can expect that someday, somehow, God will allow such a person to touch your life in a strange and helpful way. That's the way God works. Now you not might just be sitting there and thinking to yourself, that Jesus, that Jesus is so clever. That Jesus is just telling his disciples and the lawyer that the very people that they love to hate do neighboring best. Where does Jesus get that stuff? Well, let me tell you another Bible story, another Bible story that you can find in what we call the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. This is a Bible story about a king, King Ahaz. He was king of Judah. Ahaz was from the line of King David, but he is the only king for whom the chronicler does not mention a single redeeming feature. There's nothing good about this guy. He's a bad dude. He's an even worse king. So he gets his people into battle, where the survivors are carried off to Samaria. And as they're being carried off to Samaria, a prophet meets them on the road, and he says, because the Lord was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you've slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven, and now you intend to make these men and women your slaves? Aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord? Listen to me, send back these Israelites. And so then in Second Chronicles chapter 28, verse 15, are these words about what the ancestors of the Samaritans do. Then those who were mentioned by name, they got up, took the captives, and along with the booty, they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, they gave them sandals, they provided them with food and drink, and they anointed them, and they carried the feeble among them on donkeys. They brought them back to their kindred at Jericho, the city of palm trees, and then they returned to Samaria. Jesus' parable that we call the Good Samaritan is essentially Jesus saying, guys, you know how this goes. I've told you this before. You start off with the privilege of God's blessings, but then you blow it because you fail to see the priority of loving your neighbor. But look out because somebody else is going to get the message and it'll be the one you least expect. So get off your high horse. Get off your high horse and put the one that you love to hate on the back of your donkey. (laughs) Take care of the one you love to hate. Who is my neighbor, the lawyer asks? Well, the answer is, who isn't? The truth of the matter is that the word neighbor can't be defined. The is just too vast. The definition is too great. So we can't define who our neighbor is. We can only be a neighbor. There's a book that we've been using in this sermon series called The Art of Neighboring, and it was written by two pastors who live in Colorado, Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon. And in this book, The Art of Neighboring, they make the claim, the world is lonelier then we know. You can't overestimate how lonely the world that we live in is. In the book, they tell about a friend named Wes who runs a homeless shelter who tells them that most people end up in a homeless shelter simply because they're distanced from friends and family and neighbors. They don't have anyone. So it just takes one bad break. And if you don't have a support system, then you end up on the streets. One way to look at the world that surrounds us, our very neighborhoods, the houses that are around us, is to say, people are beaten up. People are beaten up by isolation, and they're beaten up by loneliness. They're half dead, but they're hiding behind the door that sits either next to your house or across the street from you. So they're more difficult to spot than the man on the road in this parable. But we can do the work. We can do the work of bandaging their wounds and working against loneliness and isolation by simply getting to know the people who are around us. So the advice that the book has to offer is to simply give what you have, do small acts, think of things that you're already doing, and invite your neighbors to join in. So there's one instance where the book talks about a girl who's 11 years old, named Nicole, and because she has to study every day, she just decides two days a week that she's gonna study across the street where there's a single mom with seven children. And so two days a week, she goes over there. She does her homework there, and she tutors some of of those children. The book says if you're baking or you're cooking, if that's something you're already doing, then take some of that to the people who live around you. Or if you're making s'mores in the backyard one night, then invite some people that you see outside to come and join you. Simply give what little you have. One story that's told about Jesus in all four of the Gospels is the feeding of the multitudes. All four of the Gospels record it, that thousands are fed with just a small offering, a small sacrifice of five loaves and two fish. And I think what we get from that Gospel story is, is that miracles happen not because of tremendous gifts or incredible effort, but miracles happen when we make a move toward the work of God. When we make a small motion toward what God is already doing. So consider the divide that God may be calling you to cross. When you read this parable of the Good Samaritan, consider the divide that you are being called to cross. It probably means a risk. A risk of some sort, but take that risk. Take that risk and define the word neighbor by being a neighbor. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, you desire that we have life and that we live life abundantly, and we desire an abundant life. Much of the life that you offer is simply uncovered in relationship. It's uncovered in relationship with you and with your people. So, Lord, would you embolden us this day. Embolden us to take small risks that will lead to deeper relationship. Would your Holy Spirit come and allow offense to fall away. Where there is insult or injury, Show us the path that leads to healing. We seek to connect with one another and with you. We seek the very way of Jesus the Christ, your Son, our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.